Welcome back to Talk Evidence, which we're recording on Wednesday the 3rd of June. As always, this is your weekly look at the evidence around the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, Last week, we covered remdesivir and the sheer volume of information. Uh, This week, we're going to be looking at waves. Is the second one inevitable? Care homes, where a lot of the deaths have been A little update on hydroxychloroquine because there have been some shenanigans with the data there. And uh, back to masks again. As always in this podcast, we're joined by our two favourite EBM nerds, Helen MacDonald, who is UK Research Editor for the BMJ. Hello, Helen. Hi, Danko. And Carl Hennigan, Editor-in-Chief of BMJ EBM and Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford University. Hello, Carl. Hi, Duncan. Great. So I'm in Brighton and this weekend when the weather was beautiful, we had hordes of people on the beach. It seems like lockdowns totally eased. And a couple of weeks ago, we heard from David Nabarro that the WHO expects there to be a second wave when that happens. And Helen, you've been looking at this this week. What actually is a second wave and uh, where did we get the idea from? Well, that's what I've been talking to other people about. But across the world, as we're seeing uh, physical distancing or lockdown measures being lifted, I think this is a key concern. And I keep reading about the possibility of a second wave of infection. But to be honest, I don't know what that really means, how we would know it if we saw one and how you measure it. Um, So I decided to call Tom Jefferson, a colleague of Carl's at CEBM in Oxford, and to ask him whether second waves really exist, and if they do, what we know about them. There have been several pandemics, um, and some of these are thought to have had two waves, or even more. But the, the one that originated the wave theory is 1889 to 1892, which is was, was known as a Russian influenza. These adjectives and these names uh, are not, I think, appropriate. First of all, we don't really know where some of these pandemics originated from. Secondly, the use of the word wave is deeply misleading. A wave is something that hits you all in one go. It's something solid. It is something you can see, and it's something synchronous. Um, The transmission of uh, infectious diseases seldom uh, is like that. And during the Spanish influenza pandemic, there's good evidence that uh, in uh, March 1918, uh, North America and the West, warring allies on the Western Front had widespread uh, uh, problems with respiratory disease. Uh, This respiratory disease seemed to uh, die down during the the late phase of the war, the so-called 100 days, when the war started moving again from trench warfare, it started uh, beginning, a, uh, beginning to be a mobile war again. And then it spiked up again at the war's end and demobbing, which saw the huge concentration of uh, military personnel and then dispersal to the, uh, to the countries of origin. Whether these were the same agents, no one knows. There has been some partial re- re- reconstruction of uh, influenza viral RNA from uh, September, from cases in September 1918. But we can't tell for sure what went on, not at the the moment. So 
there is some uncertainty around whether a second wave of the same infection exists um, and some uncertainty perhaps around how we would know that was happening. How, how would you design a study or how would you study the phenomenon of waves? The reasonable answer is to invest heavily in our surveillance. Uh, I would call it intelligence. We need to have good quality, up-to-date intelligence on what is going on around the world. We also need to understand the ecology of respiratory viruses because the narrative has been monopolized by influenza. But as the world now knows, there are very many different respiratory viruses. Some of them are known. Almost certainly the vast majority are unknown. Maybe they don't even exist now and they're mutating. So we need to understand the origins and the spread as well as having excellent intelligence which will enable us to react immediately. What I wanted to clarify with you, Carl, was I'm still a bit unclear on what this high quality intelligence would look like. Is Tom saying we need population RNA testing to be monitoring for infection rather than waiting for cases or mortality to spike again? The interesting issue about this theory of second waves, as I said, it all applies to influenza where we do have much clearer understanding about some of the issues that affect transmission. So we're much clearer about the role of children, for instance, in schools and them as spreaders of infection. So one of the things we see is, is if you close schools, that much easily reduces transmission and then you get the trough. The thing in coronavirus is we've seen this sort of emerging evidence about super spreading events. Mm-hmm. And we've also seen evidence that children are much less transmitters of the infection. So we don't really understand the bits that lead to this ongoing chain of infection and then a rapid growth. So understanding that bit of the transmission dynamics of coronaviruses, COVID-19, is the intelligent bit which will help us be able to manage it more efficiently going forward. And what we've had to do is a blunt tool is go into lockdown because we just don't quite understand how it's transmitted. So if we knew if we knew who was transmitting it or the mechanisms you're saying that would help us to well either target surveillance in those groups of people or to target interventions that would therefore prevent outbreaks or the beginning of a second wave. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so I think this sporadic outbreak, if you think about, say, 2023 uh, outbreak in SARS, so for instance in Hong Kong, they understood areas like groups of flats. There was a particular place called the Moi Gardens where about they had 90 people had the outbreak. You manage it in that setting and then you can contain it. And I think that's important. But I think what we're seeing now is there seems to be a clear seasonal effect. The effect of temperature and humidity seems to be suppressing the activity of the of the of the virus. The key we know is that the virus the... is quite spread out, don't we, regionally and and globally. So in in the UK um, there are hot spots. In Italy there were hot spots. And I think another thing that interests people is whether if you were in a hot spot last time, does that make you more vulnerable to being in a second wave, or are you more vulnerable if you haven't been through a hot spot? 
So there are gaps in our knowledge that are really quite interesting and need looking into. The first thing is to say people who are younger seem to be relatively unaffected. There's emerging evidence to suggest they have innate immunity that might protect them in some way. Somehow their T-cells are primed for coronaviruses. Maybe cross-reactivity means when they get the infection, they can fight it off really quickly. These are the asymptomatic or the very mild symptoms. So you've got a group of people like that who actually might not be adversely affected. And then you've got this other group which are adversely affected, a bit like the nursing homes we're going to move on to. They are very primed to getting this infection and having a rapid outbreak in a densely populated area. That seems to me to be the issue here. Dormitories, nursing homes, hospitals, cruise ships, if you like. There are some features that promote the rapid spread of this infection that we need to understand. Well, that's why I wanted to come to the care homes because I was thinking about this whole kind of preventing a second wave and we know that they've been very badly affected in the first wave and their the populations within care homes are particularly vulnerable by virtue of being um, older and having some of the comorbidities most linked to severe infections and several weeks ago when we talked about this we um, heard about the evidence base for interventions to prevent spread of infection in residential homes um, particularly some evidence although none of it was particularly strong for hygiene measures and limiting spread via um contacts with the outside world and also transmission through um, social and healthcare workers themselves. And since then, there's been quite a bit of growing evidence that there are problems in care homes. And Carl, I think you and I have discussed this kind of sense of disparity between the attention that's been paid to hospital and to whizzy machines like getting ventilators up and running compared to how it has felt, I think, to some people on the ground in the health and social care sectors in the community. And you've been looking at this from a European perspective, particularly. What did you find about the scale of the problem in care homes? Look, I think this has been the universal disaster within all of this COVID outbreak. It's been a problem in Spain, in France, Belgium, Italy, I found out, Sweden, and even in North America and Canada. In Spain, for instance... 19,000 deaths, nearly two-thirds of all of their deaths have occurred in care homes. And that's a really important issue. And one of the key there that I've identified is the chronic underfunding of their care system has meant they've not been prepared and they've been under-resourced and it's been a huge issue. What other themes have you found in terms of why this might have gone wrong in care homes? Well, there was a very interesting study came out of the southern Ile-de-France region that suggested confinement had been a problem in long-term care facilities because it wasn't due to acute respiratory distress, which is what we'd expect with SARS, but it was due to the problems of hypovolemia. In effect, the problem is if you confine the elderly, can find those with dementia to their rooms. They don't have access to the usual care. They stop eating. They stop drinking. We know with age you lose lose your first sensation. And actually, one of the consequences as you get more confused, delirium sets in, you look after yourself less. Confined to your room has catastrophic consequences. And actually, this is a hugely important issue because it looks like some simple supportive measures can have an input and make a difference. But the lack of resources here is really important. And we're aware of some parts around the world, like Hong Kong, 
where actually they've had no deaths. And it's interesting to look at what they've done. Well, we'll come to that in a minute. But before we do, I heard an interesting talk by Mary Daly given on the 21st of May about what went wrong in care homes during COVID-19 within England particularly and why. Uh, She's a professor of sociology and social policy and a governing body fellow at Green Templeton College at the University of Oxford. Um, But Carl doesn't know her. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And I asked her some questions around how we can unpick why this went wrong in care homes. The first thing to note, I think, is the high mortality rates in care homes. Um, We know that at least 15,000 care home residents have died, and that's not the latest statistic, but certainly up until about a week ago, some 15,000 people in care homes have died. We also know that mortality in care homes is up by around 50% uh, in the first four months of this year as compared with last year. We know that um, staff in care homes have a higher risk of dying from COVID-19 as compared with the general population. And indeed, they have an elevated risk as compared with uh, uh, staff in the NHS. So they're the most important things. That's very useful context. And those figures are around um, what's been happening in in England. And you've been looking into a little bit what's gone wrong, um, either in the planning or delivery of what we might have expected. Tell us about some of the issues you've been exploring. It's very important, I think, um, when we do research on this, to be precise and as forensic as we can be. It seems to me there are four important questions to ask. One is, were care homes targeted uh, by specific uh, action plans or policy? The second is, was there sufficient monitoring of care homes, whether we think of monitoring in terms of testing or indeed counting mortality? Thirdly, what about uh, PPE and staffing conditions? And fourthly, what about funding? And the answer to all of those questions is that, yes, uh, there was all of these happened, but they happened late. Um, It's very clear, for example, that the action plan was for the care homes took 10 weeks to produce from the first action plan, general action plan on March 3rd. Equally, PPE and testing was prioritized for NHS. And we know there's a lot of criticism of the adequacy of the response in regard to testing and PPE for NHS, but it was much worse and much later for care homes. And yes, there has been significant funding given to the local authorities, some three billion extra, I believe at this stage, but it wasn't targeted on care homes and it wasn't until May 15th, 10 weeks really after the first action plan that a care home specific uh, infection fund and support uh, fund was put in place. And if we lived in a more ideal world, what might we have expected to see? Or in fact, what have we seen in other regions of the world where um, the response in care homes has been seen to be better, perhaps? I think the bottom line is what we would have wanted to see was a much more joined up response between NHS and care homes. Um, They're effectively in this country two different systems. It's not the case in other countries. And one other thing about a lot of other countries in contradistinction to ours is that they have a long term care policy. 
We don't. We have adult social care, which is a very generic policy area. It includes care in care homes, but we do not have a long-term care policy. It's not a term that's familiar in policy in this country. In it's not familiar to me. So what, what would that involve, a long-term care policy? That would involve a policy that actually takes care and uh, looks forward to what is needed to actually ensure that older people or any or other people who have long-term care needs are actually taken are actually taken care of. We have pension policy in this country, so that's a way of seeing the future of us taking care of ourselves in the future. But our, our care needs are as great as our income needs, and they're very closely related. And we don't have any care planning in that sense, either at an individual level, most of us will admit in service, we've taken no provision for our care needs as we get older, but we don't have it also as at a national level. And so you have piecemeal funding to local authorities with budgets cut down significantly in times of austerity, but also just every year emergency funding to cope with care, uh, in the care gaps in the budgets and so forth. And this isn't a sustainable system. We need to have ring-fenced uh, funding for social care that's actually uh, organized in terms of our policy objectives. What do we want for our older people? Do we want them to be in care homes or do we want them to live in the community? How are we going to ensure different kinds of outcomes for different sectors of the population? In other countries, as I said, a, a long-term care policy is a much more recognizable entity, and that, I think, helps significantly. Among the policy measures that were taken elsewhere include, for example, rapid response teams going into homes to actually, care homes to actually help them, put in place uh, isolation measures, social distancing, and so forth. There was a national task force set up in Austria. There was also a, a diversion of staff from hospital or national health service settings to care home settings. I think it's interesting in this regard, you know, the Nightingale hospitals were disbanded once the demand for, uh, perceived demand for medical care uh, was uh, reduced. Why weren't some of those resources put into care homes? Because the peak in care homes was happening around this time. Um, so there was a lot of things, additional monies for staffing, for example, uh, additional wages um, uh, for care home workers, for example. And again, here it's really important to note that a lot of the things that were done, uh, additional benefits for staff in the health service, weren't actually passed on to staff in the social care system. Or if they were passed on, they were passed on late. Your background is in sociology and you must be curious about why you think this has happened. And particularly, it sounds like there is a disparity between what's happening with health and healthcare and what's happening in social care. Yes, I think the systemic and other divides between the social care system on the one hand and the NHS on the other are really a key part in all of this. So you have social care, which has its origins in the poor law, poor provision for poor people, basically at local level. And that's governed by the local authorities. It has no ring fence 
ring-fenced funding. Um, it's a sector that's struggling in terms of resources and so forth. And then you have the NHS on the other hand, which is centralized and perhaps also underfunded, but funded on a better basis than the care home system. So you have that divide, but you also, I think, have a cultural divide in the sense that People uh, in this country think of healthcare as a right. They think of the NHS as a national treasure. They may have criticisms of it, but it is something that's pointed to generally with pride in this country. Social care system is totally different. Uh, people don't have an image of it. They don't even have a proper knowledge of it, actually. If you ask people in service, what is social care? Almost a half of people will say, oh, sorry, I don't know what you mean. So they don't have the same sense about what social care is, or and they have no pride in the system in comparison to uh, the pride in the NHS, for example. And finally, how do you feel um, heading out of this um, lockdown phase now as physical distancing starts to lift a little? Um, do you think that we're any closer to having a better system for our care homes here? I think we are closer, actually. I think the attention given to care homes is really important and can only be positive. The public has become much more aware of care homes as places uh, which provide services and really important services. There's been some recognition for care home staff. And I think the extra resources that the government has put in, for example, the 600 million uh, care home support fund announced in May, mid-May is good. Um, and also extra staffing, the commitment to increase staffing in the sector by 20,000 is good. However, whether that places us in a, in a good enough position to face a, continue, a continuing pandemic, there may not be a second surge, or if there is, we're not sure what form it will take. But one thing is for sure, we have to continue to live with the pandemic. And there, there are real questions around whether the sector can cope or not. I think there's been a lot of damage done to the sector uh, in terms of the resources used um, and also in terms of um, morale and staffing. Um, there must be a lot of grief and trauma in care homes, I think, at the moment. And we need to address that. And also the system is just needs reform. Reform of the system has really been frozen, I think, for the last, at least the last five years. And we have a huge reliance on market-based providers, many of which are small. 80% of the sector is comprised of one single care home operator. It's very difficult to have a systemic and adequate systemic response in that kind of sector. So we have seen some good things done and a little maybe too late in some instances, but we're not prepared, I don't think, fully for another, another surge if it comes. Look, I think we really do have to think about the consequences of lockdown and what happened here. In the week commencing the 23rd of March, when we went into lockdown, there were 790 care homes reporting outbreaks in England. After lockdown, a further 5,000 care homes went on to report outbreaks. Our displacement of individuals from hospitals into care homes has been proved catastrophic. But also the way people come and go 
our approach to infection control really has failed. And I think we have to feel, think seriously about what it is we're actually doing while in the community spread is negligent. We've managed to seed it in homes and it's very difficult to eradicate it once it's in there. I think the other interesting point that Mary raised was around the esteem that social care is held in perhaps compared to healthcare um, and hearing about the difference in creating action plans and taking um, measures in hospital which have even themselves been criticised for being too slow and then hearing that what happens in in social care is is trailing that by a number of weeks is is um, is really sad to hear. But we shouldn't end on a sad note because you mentioned, Carl, that in um, Hong Kong things were better. And I didn't manage to trace him down, but I did trace down some of his work. And there was this interesting description authored by Professor Terry Lum, who's head of social care and policy at Hong Kong University. And he um, published a description in the Journal of Aging and Social Policy looking at how Hong Kong have done it differently. And I think... Reading the background, um, he explains that during the SARS outbreak in 2003, people in care homes were badly affected. And that led to Hong Kong creating plans for what to happen if there was another outbreak. And, and even describing the fact that there are kind of drills in care home settings there looking at what to do if infection happens. So he describes that from January, obviously they were hit a bit earlier than um, Europe with coronavirus, they reduced visits into care homes from doctors and they started to reduce people even meeting um so for daycare centers if you had an alternative place to go in the day they they suggested that you did not come and they limited services down to real bare essentials sort of delivering home meals escorting to medical appointments and nursing care and that funding i think for from the government perhaps um influenced by the setup there that, that there's a lot of non-governmental um, organizations involved in provision that the money flowed seemed to flow easier to to get additional sanitary and personal protective equipment for staff so that staff were asked to wear that equipment all the time they were checked for signs of fever or respiratory illness and barred from working if they had those Residents had masks as well and were asked to wear them when they were in public areas and, and they shut down their, their visitors um, from outside, be those family members or volunteers and have looked at increasing IT support to try and keep people connected instead. It seems like they're just doing all the things that, that you were just saying needed to be done. I think the thing was, and it was so interesting listening to Mary's uh, talk, was it's not just the things being done, it's the timing and I think the speed of when they're done that seems to be really quite crucial here. And I wonder whether these measures are in place everywhere now, whether now that this wave has finished, if we call it a wave at all or outbreak, whether everything is set up in residential and nursing homes to mean that they are well placed to protect their residents at, for whatever's going to happen next. I don't know. Do you have a sense of that, Carl, going into into homes um, in the Oxford area? So, so the first thing is to say we are better prepared than we were two to three months ago. There was no preparation in place. It really spooked me. It spooked me about the middle of March when I was going into care homes. They didn't have the protective equipment available. People were still coming and going, and there was no clear plan. 
What Hong Kong did is because of the 2023 outbreak, when they had outbreaks in 54 nursing homes, they took infection control seriously and put a rigorous plan in place. That's what we have to do. And I, I think what they've done is say this is part of the health system. And I think there is a problem when we think of health and social care as two disconnected issues. I think they do need to come together. One of the other things they do in that system as well, which is incredibly interesting, is they try and restrict the movement of patients from care homes into hospital because they know they don't want to bring somebody with infection into hospital and seed it there. So what they do is take their crack teams into the hospital. In fact, take their critical care unit staff into the care homes. Think about that strategy where you go in and say, look, this person needs some oxygen because they need supportive measures. They need some rehydration. How are we going to do that really well? The only way to do that is to bring it into the healthcare system. And we need to do that as a matter of urgency and then instigate what's happened in Hong Kong. It would be interesting to see if it could be trialled because in in one of the points that Mary raised in her talk was some of the hospitals that were opened and not used within the UK, the Nightingale Hospital, and I think the other one was opened in Birmingham, the use wasn't there. And so the staff in those centres have have been retired, I don't know, (laughs) returned to wherever they came from. But how interesting if if that um, resource could have been redeployed, as you were suggesting, Carl, to see... Um, what could be achieved by by moving them to where the patients are in the community? Well, I've obviously infected you with evidence-based medicine because you said the word, magic word, let's trial it. Uh, We should be doing this. You could go regionally and say, look, in this region, here's what we're going to do, but be explicit and make it clear exactly what the interventions are. And you're right, you can't do this on the hoof. You have to train the staff. You have to be clear about what your plan is and then make it available and let's see what happens. And if we can see exposure goes down in these homes, we know that's the sort of plan we should be following. So yes, I'm with you on the trialling of interventions, but I think we need a sea change approach to care homes. We should see these as important elements of the healthcare system. Mm. Helen, I had a question. Um, Carl mentioned the the study from Ile-de-France, which wouldn't have shown up as a, a COVID death, there wouldn't have been a, a diagnosis of it there, but would have been part of the excess mortality associated with the um, with the infection. That paper from Terry Lum, did it talk about that excess death in the same way? And did they did they see any of that? Or, or was it only talking about infections? His paper was largely descriptive. It was really just saying, um, based on our experience of SARS, this is what we implemented and these are the kind of findings that um, people in Hong Kong living in residential s- settings haven't haven't died. Um, so I don't think it's it's gone as detailed. It'd be interesting to to do to to find out that. And if anyone's listening who knows that information, yeah, do get in touch and let us know what you think. So uh, last time we said that we were going to talk about hydroxychloroquine. Now, since this was recorded, the two papers on hydroxychloroquine published in The Lancet and NEJM, which did have expressions of concern, have been retracted. What follows was actually recorded before that retraction took place. 
but I've decided to keep it in because I think that the discussion around why those papers had problems is still valid and the discussion around the importance of scrutinizing data in research is perennial and worth reiterating. Over to Carl. Well, look, there was a big piece published in the Lancet observational study looking across a number of hospitals around the world that reported hydroxychloroquine increased your risk of death. But on Tuesday this week, the Lancet released an expression of concern about its published study. There has been a number of letters and a number of reports that the data might not be uh, accurate. This is particularly so in Australia, where it wasn't verifiable. But a number of countries around the world are saying there are problems with the data. Now, as it turns out, the same company and the same people who'd done this study had also done an earlier study in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at ACE inhibitors and angiotensin II inhibitors and said they were okay, and in one of them protective. But that's also come under an expression of concern now. And that means the data is now subject to an independent audit. And this has been commissioned by the office not affiliated with the Surgisphere database because of these serious concerns. So it's just a bit like the outbreak. This Every time I think there's something clear to look at and say, something happens in the interim that puts a new doubt in mind. Therefore, I think this is one to watch and we'll come back to it next week. Mm. And uh, Helen, just uh, as our research editor here, could you explain what a expression of concern actually means so so broadly speaking journals when you publish something it goes out into the public domain and there it sits forevermore and it's part of um public record um so it's very unusual if there's something um if there's an error or something wrong with the paper for that to be um taken down which is called being retracted and the bar for doing that is quite high but in between that you can issue sort of expressions of concern or or make notes for readers who might be looking at the paper where your concerns are substantial enough that you you think that they need to know that um, there are big worries about this paper. Um, You can always criticise research and a lot of journals have a function to leave notes at the bottom of papers but this this is definitely a step up and a good place to keep an eye on things like this is there's a site that's run called retraction watch and they um they let people know what papers have been retracted and also um where there have been expressions of concerns because it is quite quite an unusual situation mm, absolutely can i just come in ivan aransky's retraction watch is one of them sites to bookmark really interesting information and in fact you're right they've got an article in there leading it's a great article to have a read about and maybe we should get ivan on to discuss this issue next week yes we talked to him before he was fascinating uh so we'll see if we can get him back right at the beginning of this coronavirus outbreak um when we were starting to think about uh preventing transmission in the community we heard a little bit about the evidence for masks and uh, the uncertainty and lack of evidence for for masks as it turned out and Helen you've decided to come back and look at that again I this did week. I think we've been back to this a couple of times now 
Yes, we've touched on this from several angles. We've discussed trial evidence, um, which is largely indirect from outside COVID, where I think, Carlton, it would be fair to say the summary answer is there isn't a strong case for use of masks. And then we've looked at some of the arguments um, and the trade-offs that you might think through more from an ethical perspective, which was um, tied up in Trish Greenhouse's piece on the precautionary principle, which Carl was debating whether this is really the precautionary principle or not, but whether <laughs> whether in the absence of strong reasons not to wear a mask, it's a fairly straightforward, inexpensive and convenient thing to do and seems like it's not going to cause huge harm. The major hypothesized harm being that you sort of get closer to people because in some ways you feel safer. But I was quite interested to see this piece come out in The Lancet very recently, 1st of June, looking at the effects of physical distance, so face masks, eye protection, and and literally how far you are away from people in healthcare and non-healthcare settings. And it's a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at those issues, specifically in SARS-CoV-2 and some other um, coronaviruses, whereas some of the research that we've been looking at and discussing before was drawing quite strongly on respiratory illnesses in general and and influenza. Mm, So this is maybe narrowed a bit, but it does have that caveat around it that most of the research here is observational. So they found 172 observational studies across 16 countries and no trials. They found 44 relevant comparative studies in healthcare and non-healthcare settings. My favourite way of looking at the results of this was actually on um, Twitter, where there was a rather nice infographic posted, which suggested that for physical distance, if you were less than a metre from somebody, your chance of infection or transmission was 12.8%. Whereas if you were at a distance of a metre or more, your chance was around 2.6%. And there was moderate quality evidence for that. Um, For face masks, with or without respirators, so this is quite broad face mask wearing. Without masks, they found um, the chance of infection and transmission to be about 17.4% versus 3.1% with masks. And for eye protection, they found transmission was about 16% without protection and about 5.5% with protection. But it's worth saying that both for masks and for eye protection, the certainty of that evidence is low, which means that the number could well be um, quite, quite different to that. And I know you I know you know a bit about this, Carl. And it seemed to me an, an important study. It was funded by WHO. And I think there is great interest in it. Do you think it clarifies anything? The study brings together some of the evidence. And so the first thing is it's really helpful to see all of the evidence in one place. Some of the nuances, though, are lost when you suddenly say, let's bring this all down to a summary estimate and assume that's what we can infer. And I started to dig around and look at some of the individual studies and just see what they were like, just to get a feeling for the studies. So, for instance, there were one of done in in China, which was a case control study in five Hong Kong hospitals. 241 non-infected and 13 infected staff. And what they basically showed is they then surveyed them about the use of masks, gloves, gowns and hand washing. And what they found is that when caring for index patients with SARS, staff who reported use of all four measures were not infected 
whereas all infected staff had admitted at least one measure. So basically, that's what you start to infer. But actually, it's not the greatest way of doing the study with the recall bias and what's happening there, because one of the things soon as you're infected, you start to think more about, oh, yes, I remember that occasion when I took my gloves off near the patient and I forgot to wash my hands. So there's an element of recall bias in all of this information. So I think, look, we know that the issue is here that actually already there's protective elements wearing the right equipment and respirator mask, gloves, washing, and the distance element. Where I have a problem then is that people start to infer this evidence for the decision that they've already made about what we should do in the public. I'm still here saying that we need an evidence base to inform what we do outside and that needs to have an element of randomization in it. How do you feel about that? You're stunned into silence, Helen. So are you going to wear a mask when you go shopping? No, not. Uh, so look, if the thing is about when I go out, what do I do? Um, I don't wear a mask all the time when I'm at work. It's, it's physically impossible for me to adhere to a strategy. The thermogenic properties of wearing a mask for five-hour shift fully are incredibly difficult. So I wear them in the places of high risk. So as soon as I go into the place where I'm seeing a patient, if I go into the care home, I go in with the gloves, I go in with the mask, and I, and I make sure at that point in time, I'm really doing it and adhering to it. But to be honest with you, is the difficulty in wearing these for a prolonged period of time is very difficult. And if you've got any other problems, like you've got asthma or any breathing problems, it gets slightly worse. And I'm still going to say the biggest issue that I have with outside is this issue of people with symptoms thinking they may be okay. And therefore, you've got this trade-off, this risk compensation. Well, you think people who might have symptoms of infection will put a mask on and go outside rather than stay at home? It's not that thing. I'm just saying it's a possibility. And that's what you need to trial when you're doing this, is understand the fit as an equal harm. Remember, in last week, we looked at compression stockings and showed actually they didn't derive any benefit when we've been using them. Just like we said, hydroxychloroquine, the concept of non-drug intervention, just as serious in terms of how we evaluate the evidence. And so if we want to understand these things, and if we are going to have a clear message, we need a clear evidence base. Great. That uh, was a sort of mini rant from Carl. We haven't had that section properly for a while, so it's... Uh, I feel like most sections have involved that. a rant. <laughs> I do have a mini rant. Do you? More? In, in, oh, just in a sort of fun way at the end of the programme. Go on then, what is it? Well, look, there's, there's a number of, of words that I keep hearing, whether it's on the TV or from politicians, that I think these people have never heard or thought about this word in the last few months. And I keep hearing it on a daily basis and they appear... This is going to be like listener bingo. What, what's it? What? Yeah, yeah. So I want you all to think about concepts or words that you hear. So here's my top three. Uh, R number. What's the matter with the R number? Well, and I see so many people telling me about the R number is going to be below one. And I'm like, OK, could you just explain to me where you get that data from? Where do you mean that? The second one is we've discussed today, second wave. We've got to be concerned about a second wave. And I'm like, OK, what do you mean by that? And my third one, which has slightly disappeared now, but was early on, was flattening the curve. That was everywhere for about two weeks. 
and these come like an epidemic. They get into the psyche, and then they disappear. I think if we'd had John Deeks on this week, you'd also have a hundred percent accurate. There you go. There's another <laughs> one. So what I hear on the terms that you hear people say, politicians, the Donald Trumps of the world, we're guided by the evidence. Words. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and I think they're really interesting concepts. What they appear and then disappear just like an epidemic into silence. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> You know, as as we've said a million times, COVID is just exposing all those problems and language is, is one of them too. So I think that's it for this week. Um, as Carl said, we'll be back next week looking at hydroxychloroquine again. I feel like we're just doing the same two episodes <laughs> over and over we're again. We're about to test it next As the be, data changes. I'll be giving you uh, expression of concern. Carl hasn't talked about <laughs> death for a couple of weeks. Oh, that's true. I like yeah. to bring that back, yes, definitely. So, yes, if you haven't subscribed, uh, then do so on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And um, it's really useful to hear from you uh, if you have questions, if you're really bored of us talking about hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir or, or death or masks or just COVID. Yeah. Um, so uh, Helen and Carl are available on Twitter. We'll put their handles in the podcast text. You can also go to bmj.com slash podcast where you can find out how to drop us an email if that's your preferred medium. So until next week, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Take care.